0: Well, let me reiterate some of my earlier points. I'm not going to prejudge what happens if. I'm not going to do that because, frankly, I think both political parties and a whole host of others are sitting there waiting and hoping that the international community is going to tell them what to do. And I'm not going to tell them what to do. I've told them what I believe they need to prioritize. I, speaking for my government, believe they need to prioritize in order to demonstrate that somehow if they do extend, this time will be different. But make no mistake, they shouldn't assume that we will just embrace an extension. This time has to be different. I have to show why this time is different. The regional players have a bigger role in this. EGAD is the guarantor. Sudan is the chair of EGAD. You know, Uganda has played a role. Sudan's played a role. Rilo Odinga was just here with Kenya. We certainly recognize the challenges that EGAD faces with civil war in Ethiopia that is finally, it looks like, reaching a point where they will actually negotiate a settlement. Continued challenges in Somalia as they move through their own democratic transition of power to a new president. And Kenya has elections coming up. Elections always preoccupy a country. The challenges in Sudan following the coup from October 25th and the international is working hard to bring the people together to find a new answer, don't assume that we will just blithely say, oh yes, time's up, you have to extend. No, that's not for us to say. And the leaders should not assume that that will just automatically be our answer. I am hopeful, I'm optimistic, because I truly believe that the vast majority of the people of South Sudan want peace. They want an opportunity to realize the dream they all had for this country when 11 years ago almost they overwhelmingly approved the referendum for independence. Problem in South Sudan is not a shortage of weapons. Not for the military, not for the civilians, not for the militias. I've been told that uh, Chairman Tut himself at one point admitted that this country has more than enough arms to arm its military. The position of the U.S. on the arms embargo, not just the administration, but the Congress has been that it should stay in place until this country completes a peaceful transition to a democratically elected government by fully implementing the revitalized peace agreement that the leaders of this country agreed to, committed to, and promised to abide by. The arms embargo contains exceptions or an opportunity to apply for an exemption for proper justification, so if they truly need weapons in order to graduate the necessary unified forces, they can't ask for that, a point I've been making ever since I got here from President Keir on down. country never has, it never requested an exemption. If they've got a reasonable need for those weapons, we would consider a request for an exemption. We certainly want to know that, for example, provisions on securing ammo and weapons and the like Uh, that there were reasonable controls, that this wouldn't just be a subterfuge for supplying weapons to the very unauthorized people you say already have more than they need, but it is possible. And indeed, in the most recent renewal of the arms embargo, recognition was made that it might actually be a bit strict, that, for example, non-lethal assistance would be necessary, could be necessary, and shouldn't have to go through a cumbersome exemption process. And so there is now an exemption for non-lethal assistance that will enable countries to, for example, provide uniforms and boots and other items that are also necessary for standing up the necessary unified forces. That said, every two weeks practically since I've been here nine months ago, I've been told the forces will graduate. And we're now told that the forces will graduate perhaps around June 3rd, and yet hasn't been a whole lot of visible movement in the cantonment areas or the training centers. It's not money, it's not the arms embargo that is holding up the formation of the necessary unified forces. It's the political will of the leaders of this country to sit down and make it happen. Well, certainly the fact that they're not importing heavy weapons in large quantities and then using them against their people is a good good outcome from the agreement, which is ultimately, I mean, things like arms embargoes are intended to both prevent bad behavior and encourage good behavior by setting out conditions that will reward good behavior. And I don't even like describing it in that terms because it sounds very paternalistic, but sometimes countries need incentives to do the things that they've committed to do. And most of the conditions in the arms embargo are simply implement the peace agreement. I mean, they're specific to elements of the peace agreement. So you want to get rid of the arms embargo, it's real simple, implement the peace agreement. Graduate the forces, complete the transition period, hold elections that are free, fair, credible, and democratic, in the words of your own president. sooner you do that, sooner the arms embargo can go away. But in the meantime, I do believe that it makes it more difficult to add to what is already far more weapons in this country than anybody in their right mind would need if this country were peaceful and prosperous. The amount of support that the U.S. provides this government, the people of the, not to the government, because we don't provide the support to the government because we're not convinced that they can manage their funds in a transparent, open, and accountable manner. What we do, however, is provide support to the people of South Sudan directly and indirectly through the many dedicated to implementing partners on the ground out there working day in and day out with the people of South Sudan, through our support for the UN, through our support for UNMISS to try and ensure that you have uh, the security you need to build South Sudan. We will continue to support this country to the degree that is that we can But we're also going to continue to look for ways to do it in ways that don't enable behavior that simply continues to stall and try and run out the clock or whatever metaphor you want to use because for some people at least the situation we have is working out just fine, thank you. But it's tough. The government knows that we prioritize supporting humanitarian needs. It is against international principles to condition humanitarian needs on other conditions, to hold people's lives hostage to political agendas. And even if it weren't against international principles, it sure is against U.S. principles. But that does create challenges. Now, one of the tools we've used, it's blunt, but we've used it, is sanctions. And, not surprisingly, the government doesn't like that for a whole host of reasons. First off, if nothing else, it it's simply a mark of disapproval, whether it has any real impact on the individual's ability to do things or not. For some of the individuals we sanctioned, they certainly believe it has impacted them. For the government as a whole, coming back to the original question on the arms embargo, one of the reasons neither they nor most other African countries like Things like embargoes and sanctions is because they don't like to be called out for not doing what they've said they're going to do. Many of the individual sanctions we have on people in this country are for actively working to thwart the implementation of peace. Some of those people are in government. They're not very happy with us. That's a tool. We're always looking at whether it can be used effectively going forward, but I think more importantly, is things that you will have seen in the NDAA report and some of the remarks that have come out from the Senate and some of uh, the things I've said is we're really looking at the public financial management area because that is an area where the government is sensitive to its access to funding. And the government's well aware that uh, they need to make further progress in managing their own resources if they hope to receive an extended credit facility from the IMF, which is something they would like to have. There's an audit underway of the second rapid credit facility that will be critical to uh, a determination about how much additional funds uh, the international community might be willing to extend to the government to help it actually get to the point. I mean, we all, from time to time, need to borrow money because our cash flow is not what it should be, or or we've had unexpected expenses, you know, and maybe it's not money, maybe it's uh, a cow or a bag of seed or something that we're borrowing, but the principle's the same. But we're not going to get to borrow another one if we don't pay it back, or if we don't use it wisely, if we use it to go out and, and uh, get a barrel of whiskey instead of uh, that plow animal or whatever that we said we were going to use it for, we're not likely to get more. Uh, This is the challenge. There aren't a lot of tools, but the tools we have, we will use. And of course, our big concern is oil, because that's where the money is. In the U.S., there's an old saying, there's a historic figure called Willie Sutton. He was a known, very famous uh, bank robber, almost colorful. And the question was, was, was once raised, why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. Why do you divert oil? Well, because that's where the money is. (laughs) All right, if that's where the money is, what can we do to make sure that the money is actually going to the people of South Sudan, people as in the citizens of South Sudan, and not just a few people of South Sudan?